the book of Revelation. We are going through the book of Revelation as a series, and this book is intended to be a blessing to those who read and hear it. It's not intended to be an obscure uh, oddity in the Bible. So we are going through this book, seeking by God's grace to benefit from it and grow by his word. Um, Welcome if you're a guest with us. Welcome to everybody, but welcome to our guests. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. I uh, usually get the privilege of proclaiming God's word on Sunday. So this Sunday we're in Revelation chapter 5. If you can turn there, we'll we'll project it as well, but it's much better to have it right in your, your hands. Uh, this past February, on February 5th, 2017, it was a Sunday afternoon and evening, and you might remember it, um, there was a football game that was on. And um, just for, s- uh, h- how many of us watched the Super Bowl l- last year? Okay, good, most of us. Well, good, so this illustration hopefully will be helpful. Um, What were you doing about five minutes into the third quarter? So after halftime, about five minutes into the third quarter, after the Atlanta Falcons had scored for the fourth time, after they had forced an interception, after they had held the Patriots to a a mere field goal, what were you doing? I don't know about where you were, but where I was, there was loud wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then, at 8 minutes and 30 seconds left in the third quarter, everything changed. Tom Brady and the Patriots went on to engineer the most fantastic comeback in Super Bowl history. The first overtime victory in, in the Super Bowl in a mere 23 minutes. Three touchdowns, two two point conversions, and a field goal, and then in overtime, the touchdown to win. That was February 5th, 2017. By the way, they're playing them this evening. Um, This is not an advertisement for the Patriots, but... um, Well, you've probably seen the t-shirts, right? Have you guys seen the t-shirts? It just says simply 28-3, right? Because that was the score at that moment. Doesn't say much much else. Actually, you don't have to raise your hand, by the way. You're very welcome here, by the way. Even if you're a Dallas fan, you're welcome here. so we, we have Dallas fans in our midst. So, um, But every time you see that T-shirt, right, and it says 28 to 3, does it not it kind of bring you back to the end of the game and the exhilaration of that win, right, just seeing 28 to 3? Well, what does this have to do with Revelation 5? Revelation 5 is God's T-shirt for the believer, for the downcast believer. It is God's T-shirt of the victory of the greatest hero ever. And it's a defining victory, and he wants you to wear this T-shirt. We're going to dig into it. He wants you to wear this T-shirt, and he wants you to see this T-shirt as you live your life. He wants you to remember this amazing comeback, this amazing victory of the greatest hero. And he wants you to be defined by that in life. This is a T-shirt you're to wear through the ups and downs of life. This is a reference point for every believer And we know we've been going through Revelation, and we know that two chapters of Revelation were addressed to real churches in Asia, uh, Asia Minor, real churches that really represent the whole church throughout all time. And so this 
chapter is for you. God wants you to wear the t-shirt as well as the, the early church. They needed to hear these truths because they were facing some real difficulties, some significant difficulties, and they were in danger and had already, to some degree, uh, compromised. They were in danger of failing to live in light of this, this great victory. So God brings them Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to dig in. We're going to learn from this. Um, we're going to march through the chapter and benefit. And I hope at the end of it, you will be reminded of this victory and live in light of it. So let's pray and ask God to do just that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Revelation 5. Lord, thank you that you've given us truth to reference, to remember, to, to let it work in and through our lives, to define us. And Lord, we need this truth. We need Revelation 5. We need to hear your word. So Lord, help me. Lord, help me with this chapter. This chapter deserves every effort I can make to explain it and illustrate it and apply it and celebrate it. And it deserves our most rapt attention to listen and to be changed. So Lord, speak to us through this wonderful chapter in your word. And Lord, may all the things that you intend for your word in this particular chapter, may, may you have that effect in our lives. May your word have that effect in our lives this morning. May we go from here changed by you, O oh God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So let's read our Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. That's a really good Bible app, by the way, if you don't have that. I wish I sounded like that. Toby might be able to get away with that. but Don't worry about it, brother. That's my experience every day with my phone. Just Let's read chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take 
the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped god's word from revelation chapter five this chapter is an important chapter in the book of revelation We've been in chapter 4 last week. We were in chapter 4. If you weren't able to be here, I encourage you to, to uh, listen to it. Or uh, I'm not sure if we have it on video, but it's an important chapter, at least just to read through. These two chapters go together. It's, a, it's the scene of heaven. It's the throne room. What's going on in the heavenlies? And, and this chapter, these two chapters fit in line with the whole storyline of Revelation because, as, as I mentioned, the, the seven representative churches were addressed right before this. These particular churches with their particular struggles. They were living in a culture that had dominant cultural forces that were opposed to them, opposed to the Christian message, opposed to the Christian lifestyle. And they were under pressure living in that culture under these dominant forces of of the Roman culture and the dominant force of the Jewish established culture, the non-believing Jewish culture. They had been forced out of really the safety and security uh, that they could have lived under that that Jewish culture, kicked out of the synagogues, now left on their own under Roman uh, rule and oppression. And there was pressure in light of that, tremendous pressure to compromise the Christian life and message and not to be faithful witnesses. So that's the context here. And so God comes in the book of Revelation and gives them chapters 4 and 5. So these chapters are meant for those seven churches and the churches in Asia Minor, and yet they're representative churches, so we know, therefore, it's meant for us. It's in God's Word. Because they represent really what the church faces throughout all time and throughout the earth, to some degree or another. So these chapters bring a fresh perspective that is meant to be a powerful motivation for them to put all their faith in the Lord, to believe Him, to put all their faith in His plans, to trust Him to work all things out. Last week we learned that ultimately God is on His throne and it's all about Him. He's in control. He's the ultimate answer. He's most worthy. He is to be the center of our lives. He is going to work out everything. He is God alone. He's on the throne. He made all things. He sustains all things. All things are from Him, through Him, and ultimately to Him. So our our focus needs to be on Him, on God, first and foremost. And chapter 5 brings into that context this great truth that God's plans, in order for them to be worked out, there must be one who is worthy. There must be one who is worthy, who can can take that scroll and uh, unroll it and implement 
the entirety of God's plan. There must be someone who can do that. And He's come, the, this great Savior, and He is worthy to take the scroll, and He is worthy to work out God's plan. And so in chapter 5, there's this glorious celebration. Because there's a scroll, and there's a Savior worthy to unroll that scroll and to implement God's plan, to work out the plans of the one on the throne. And so there's a celebration. And these chapters call us to live in light of this heavenly perspective. No matter what our circumstances might be, no matter what pressures we might face, no matter how overwhelming the world around us, our own sin and Satan may seem at times, these chapters give us a greater truth. He has overcome, and in Him we overcome. The message to John was not to weep, but to rejoice, really, because Jesus, the one who's worthy to unroll the scroll, Jesus will take care of it all. That's the core message here in this chapter. Don't weep, but rejoice. Jesus, the Savior, will take care of it all. So let's dig into this chapter. Let's look first. We're going to look at the scroll. We're going to look at the Savior and then the celebration. Just a, a way to outline the chapter as we move through it. So first, the scroll. In the beginning, verses 1 through 4, it addresses the scroll. John is in the throne room. He's been part of the worship there. They're exalting in this infinitely glorious God. He's created all things. And then he sees in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll. We know it's important, right? because it's, it's a major part of the story, but it's in the right hand of the one on the throne. It's his right hand. It's a, he's holding it. It's an important thing, this, this scroll, whatever it is. And it has writing. It has writing on the, the front and on the back. And that would have been unique in those days, a, a scroll or a book. And when the Bible uses the word that we have in English, either book or scroll, they're all uh, rolled up scrolls at this time. The, the book as we know it, which would be a codex, is what it's called like this, didn't really start until around the time that this was written. Uh, it was very rare. Later on, it became common. So they would have scrolls rolled up, and they'd be made out of a certain type of paper or out of animal hides. And you would write normally on one side because the back side was rough. Either the, the texture of the paper was rough, or if it was an animal hide, it was the actual the, the hairy side of the animal. So it was unusual to have something written on both sides. This is an unusual, unique scroll written on both sides, and it's sealed. It has some sort of wax seal at different parts on the scroll. So uh, th that the seal is, is basically setting apart that section, and you need to have privilege to kind of enter into that section. That's the idea. So that's the scroll here. It's being held in the right hand of the one who's on the throne. We'll, we'll talk more about the scroll in details later. And there's a mighty angel who calls out to see if anyone is worthy. Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? And no one is found in heaven or on earth or under the earth. None of the great angels are worthy. There's no human being who is worthy to open the scroll. There's, there's no one. And John starts to weep and weep loudly. He weeps loudly because no one can open the scroll. So it makes us wonder, well, what could be in the scroll? What's so important about this scroll that, that there'd be a loud, uh, an angel loudly, a great angel loudly proclaiming who can open the scroll? And that when no one could open it, he would weep. What's going on? What's in the scroll? How do we know what's in the scroll? Well, always good, right, in Scripture when we want to know something, look in other parts of Scripture for cross-references. The Bible is very consistent with itself. 
Why? Because it has one author. The great author, God, wrote the Bible. Now, he used multiple human authors, and they didn't always know what was going on at the time of writing, but, but we know God's Word. God's Word is God's Word. We, it's, we have identified it as such because it is God's Word. It, the, the author, the prime author, God, is behind it all, so he's consistent, and he wants us to understand his Word. He's not given us revelation so that we'd just be confused. He wants us to understand. So always a good thing to just look elsewhere. So in the book of Revelation, it's a type of literature called apocalyptic literature. It's, a, it's literature written uh, with images and so forth to speak prophetically to God's people amidst struggles and oppression so that they would put their hope in God. And it, it tends to follow certain patterns. So we look at other apocalyptic books, we're likely to see the same thing. And indeed we do. We turn to books like Ezekiel and Daniel. Much of Revelation connects strongly with Ezekiel and Daniel and, and other books as well, Zechariah and Isaiah as well. So Ezekiel chapter 2, 8 through 10, it mentions something about a scroll or a book. Uh, we have that to project. Good. But you, son of man, so God is speaking to Ezekiel, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and, I eat, and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Wow, that's almost verbatim what we read in Revelation 5. The same sort of scroll, it's in the hand, um, stretched out to him, and it has writing on the front and back. What's written on the scroll? It says here actually what's written on it, right? Lamentation and mourning and woe. If we looked in Ezekiel, we would see that the scroll had words of, a, of judgment from Ezekiel, but also words of promise from Ezekiel. It's, it's a call to Ezekiel as a prophet to speak for God, to speak words of judgment against Israel because Israel had for centuries been wandering from the Lord and rebelling, and God was bringing judgment finally on them, being loving and patient. He's finally bringing judgment, but even in his judgment, he brought promise. And Ezekiel is full of the promise of God to redeem to those who would look to him. So it's judgment and blessing, really, promise of blessing coming in that scroll. That's what's, that's what's on that scroll. We see other uh, references in Scripture, Daniel chapter 7, a very, very parallel part of Scripture. It says in Daniel 7, 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So this is a throne room experience. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Same word again. Books, scroll, same word. Daniel chapter 12, very similarly, says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the verse 9 go your way Daniel for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end you see the parallels by the way just a side note God is a God who plans things out ahead of time he, is, he has a plan he's in control he gives that plan he reveals that plan to his people that's part of what this whole idea of writing down things God writes on scrolls what he plans to do what he wants to say and so we see in Ezekiel and Daniel that there are scrolls, and on those scrolls are, are, are promises and plans of judgment 
and blessing. Judgment to those who live for evil and reject God's reign and rule, reject the grace that they could have in the Lord. Blessing for those who trust Him, who turn to Him in, in their need and trust Him. It's really justice. God is a judge. A judge is to bring justice. And justice means for those who have rebelled that I bring response, a right and good response to your rebellion. I bring consequences to your rebellion. And, and the scripture that ultimately is we're put away from God and His goodness. And we suffer for that. We suffer misery. We suffer despair. We suffer brokenness. And actually that's the state, the, the judgment uh, for our for Adam and Eve in, in their sin was to be put out of his presence. And, and so the life we live, the, many of the things we experience in this broken world is really the justice of God of being put away, put away from his blessing and presence. So he's a God of justice. He responds that way. But justice for those who turn and trust him is to reward them with forgiveness and blessing and grace. It's all of grace. It's all from him. But he's a God who is merciful and loves those and and those who trust him receive blessing. So that's what's in this scroll. And, and we can read also, of course, in Revelation itself, and we'll read as the scroll gets unrolled, and what sorts of things happen as the scroll gets unrolled. The seals get broken, and a bunch of things happen there, and then it's unrolled, and different things happen, and you'll, we'll see these waves of things that are very parallel happen through the rest of the book, through the next following chapters. We'll, by the way, uh, resume that part in later in November. So we'll take a little bit of break next week. Uh, we have Mike Lilly's ordination, and then after that we'll have a little uh, three-part three series related to celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Then we'll come back to Chapter 6 when I get back. I'll be away for a little bit. I'll come back, uh, and we'll learn about that. But anyhow, if you read through Revelation, you'll see the scroll gets unrolled and what sorts of things happen. Judgment, right? There's judgment on God's enemies. Those who have rebelled against him, sinful humanity, there's, there's judgment, there's, there's wars, there's famine, there's, there's these consequences that God brings, and there's blessing for God's people. It's important to see that as you read through, and, and by the way, I'd encourage you to be reading Revelation as we're in this series. I trust as we read it and reread it and go through it, God will help you understand this wonderful book. So there's blessing for God's people amidst the unrolling of this scroll. So that's what's going on. It's God's plan. This is God's plan to, to bring his perfect and final response to mankind, which is justice in the form of judgment on enemies and blessing and reward on his people. That's what's going on, and, and that's what this scroll contains. It's the plans of God to implement these plans. It, that, that's what he's looking to do. So he has the scroll in the right hand. I hope that makes sense. That's what the scroll is about. That's what it represents. Uh, in May 1943... The World War II Allied world leaders met and they determined to launch an invasion. The Nazis had taken all of Western Europe, they had taken all of France, and they realized in order for us to, to fight and hopefully win against the Nazis, they needed to retake France. And so they decided in May of 43 to form plans for an invasion of France, to go ashore somewhere in France, to open up a second front, so between the Western Front and the Russian Front, the Nazis would have to fight on two sides and would be defeated, hopefully. So in August of 43, the planning group handed the Supreme Allied Commander, Dwight Eisenhower, this elaborate and well-thought-out 
plan for what we now call a D-Day invasion. This was the most massive beach invasion in history. This plan involved landing 156,000 troops in one day, moving 7,000 naval vessels, 23 infantry divisions, 12 armored divisions, four airborne divisions. It included using almost 4,000 heavy bombers, over 1,000 medium and light bombers, almost 5,000 fighters. Over the course of preparing for the invasion, 11,000 tons of bombs were dropped on German positions along the coast. And adding to that elaborate plan was another elaborate plan of a fake invasion, using fake tanks, fake ships, and fake aircraft, along with fake radio signals, fake intelligence, the use of double agents, and using the, probably the most famous general at the time, General Patton, to lead the fake invasion. And as you know, all this planning worked. Similarly, that scroll contains all of God's plans to bring about through his elaborate and genius plan the full and final victory of our God and all his allies. And it's in his right hands, and it will work. And yet there's no one worthy to implement this plan. There is no supreme allied commander who has the right to bring about this plan. No one in heaven, no one on earth. There's no one. And really, if you read through your Bible, you can see that, right? There's, there's no one. God is a God of plans. God's had a plan from the beginning. He's hinting at that plan, and as we read through the Bible story, we see it develop more and more, but there's no one who, who is worthy. Everybody who is a leader called to implement those plans fails. Adam and Eve called to implement the plans in the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Wonderful plan. Fill this earth, subdue it. Image me, reflect me, walk with me in the garden. Trust me. Fill the earth and fill it with my glory. Rule over my creation. Make me known. Enjoy my glory in my creation. It's wonderful. Just one thing. Don't eat of that tree. That's all. And what does Adam and Eve do? They eat of the tree. They fail. The storyline continues. Abraham calls. He fails. Jacob, Moses, David, again and again, the people of, of God in the Old Testament call to in, the, in light of his wonderful grace to trust him and to walk in his ways, they fail. There is no one worthy. All have failed. No one is worthy to, to implement God's plan throughout history until one arrives on the scene. Arrives on the scene in, in our chapter, arrives on the scene in history. John is told he's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. And this is reference to Old Testament promises that God would bring a hero. He would bring one who would implement God's plan, who would lead God's people in his plans, a king, a chosen king, an anointed king, a Messiah. We use the word Christ, the anointed one. God had planned this, and, and he was going to come from Judah. So Genesis 49 speaks of Judah as uh, a lion's cub. This idea of the Lion of Judah, this is the promised one from the tribe of Judah. So Genesis 49 speaks of that, 49, 9, and 10. That Judah is a lion's cub, and then it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The ruling, the king's scepter will not depart from Judah. There'll be a king that God will bring. As far back as Genesis 49, God is already hinting, I'm going to bring someone on the scene. 
He'll be a lion. He'll be a ruler. He's the root of David as well. And this is uh, in reference to Isaiah chapter 11 where it speaks of the, the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. That this root of Jesse who will stand as, as a signal for the peoples. He will be a leader. Uh, chapter 11, verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse shall rule. So it's speaking of this one who will come when God will bring his full kingdom, his final kingdom, his final plans, there'll be this root of Jesse, this root of David. And so John uh, would have known, of course, these references. This is the promise of the Messiah. And he, and he turns and he hears that there's one who conquered. And instead of seeing a lion, what does he see? There's a lamb. He turns expecting to see the lion, and there's a lamb there, standing as if he'd been slain. He has seven horns and seven eyes. Those, those seven horns and seven eyes represent things. Again, these are images. The numbers are not to count, but to represent things. And he turns, and there's this conqueror who has conquered in an entirely different way than we would expect naturally. He's a conqueror who has won by losing. He's brought life by dying. He brings healing by being wounded. He gains triumph and victory by laying down his life and surrender. He's a sacrificial lamb who has fulfilled all righteousness, who has done what we all failed to do, who has done what all the leaders that God has called to, has failed to do, what all of humanity has failed to do. He's been obedient. He's fulfilled all righteousness. What was expected of humanity, he has fulfilled. He has loved God to the point of death on the cross. He has loved his fellow man, men and women, to the point of death on the cross. He lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilled our righteousness, and then laid down that righteousness on the cross as a sacrifice in the stead of the undeserving. His righteous life for ours. Our just deserts for his. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it wonderfully. For our sake, he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the lamb who was sacrificed on the cross, the one who shed his blood and died for us in our place. So that through him we can be forgiven for our sins, our rebellion against God, our turning away from God, our failure. Brothers and sisters, and everybody here, we don't like to face failure, do we? We don't like to admit that we've failed, yet we all know it. And life often is just running from the reality of our failure, isn't it? We deny that we've failed. We've failed to do what we know we ought to do. We've failed to love God like He deserves. We've failed to love others as they deserve, at least to love them as, as ourselves. We failed to do that. We, we fail in the knowledge of, of the truth that it's the only right thing. We fail in the knowledge of our Creator who surrounded us with blessing, who takes care of us day after day, who provides food and, and 
shelter and clothing and relationships around us. We, in, in light of that, we fail to love him and to honor him and to live for him, to love him as he deserves. He, he deserves to be loved with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, just, just by virtue of what he shows us through creation. And we know we ought to love others. And we've failed. We've failed to be the humans God wants us to be. That's the reality. That's the predicament of humanity. That's the core issue, by the way. There's a lot of other issues that circulate in, in our culture and around us. There's all sorts of things that we can be concerned about. All sorts of things happening. There's all sorts of things that our culture wants to define as the issue. But you know what the issue is? Your failure, my failure. That's the issue. G.K. Chesterton was asked to write an article on what was wrong with humanity. He's a famous journalist in the 18, late 1800s. And perhaps people expected a long essay on all the things that were wrong, all the cultural aspects, all the, the, the social wrongs, all the philosophical wrongs. You know what he wrote? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's what's wrong. You and me. We've failed. We've failed to do what we know we ought to. And we deserve, right, rightly, to be put away from the presence of God, to receive the just response of that, to bear the punishment of God, the holy justice of God, the wrath of God in our sin and in our failure. That's the reality. And people don't want to hear it. Our culture doesn't want to hear that. But we can't have a real conversation with them if we can't talk about that. And if, certainly if we can't face that this is the core issue, the core problem with us is our failure. And so with John, as we hear who is worthy to open the scroll, we should weep if that's all there is because none of us are worthy. There's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no justice. There's no God working out his plan. But Christ has come. The God-man, God himself, came as a man and lived a righteous life and gave himself up for us to rescue us from our failure. And that's the core of the message as, as Christians that's the core of the truth, that God has not left us in our sin, but has sent his son. He so loved the world. He so loves you. He so loves us that he sent his only son to, to be in a sacrifice for us, to, to not leave us in our sin, but to rescue us, to shed his blood for undeserving sinners, and to rescue us, to ransom us to himself. And so the Lion of Judah, the conquering one, is a lamb and had to be had to be a lamb. Had to be one who shed his blood for us. Had to be one who paid for our sins. Had to be one who loved us and loved the Father to the point of death on the cross. There's no one like the lamb. There's no one worthy like the lamb. There's no one who has conquered like the lamb. There's no one whose mercy and grace is so great to give himself for us to bear the wrath of God like the lamb. You know, he has seven horns. This represents, seven rep represents perfection or fullness. Horn represents strength. He is perfect in his power. In his work, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, he has won the right to rule. He has conquered sin and death. He's conquered Satan's right to oppress and rule mankind. He's won the right to rule the earth and all mankind and all the heavenly realm. He has conquered through his death and resurrection. He is mighty, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given this, given this lamb, the God-man, Jesus. And he has seven eyes. 
representing the ever-present Holy Spirit who dwells with the Father and the Son, is God in perfect equality and dwells among the churches and dwells throughout the earth and sees all and knows all. And Christ, who is one with the Spirit, sees all and knows all. So he's almighty in the seven horns and he's all-knowing in the seven eyes. He's a Savior. He is the hero of this story. So what happens when the lion and the lamb show up and take the scroll in our story in chapter 5? What happens? As he takes his scroll to, to implement the ultimate plan of God, what happens? There's a celebration, isn't there? There's an amazing celebration there in heaven. And this celebration just, just kind of goes out in waves. It starts in the throne room and it goes out to, to those around there, the, these, these angels, millions of angels, perhaps billions of angels. Does anyone know what a myriad is? It's not a word we use. 10,000. So myriads of myriads is 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. Not that it's about the number, but there's just so many, and it's thousands of thousands. So if you multiply thousands of thousands times 100 million, you get a lot, 10 to the 14th. And again, it's not about the number, but there's basically the, the celebration reverberates out to all the angelic hosts. And then to the, from there, it goes to all of creation, all of humanity. They're celebrating. They're celebrating that the Lamb is worthy. This Lamb who died for sins and ransomed men for God, He is worthy. And they sing a new song, the, the, the elders and the four living creatures, a fresh song, a song that is previously unknown because, because the Lamb has come and He's taken the scroll, there is finally a hero to save the day. And he's come. And they celebrate that. And he has conquered. He's conquered through his death. And so they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign on earth Verses 9 and 10 are some of the most precious words in the whole Bible. Jesus is worthy because he has shed his most valuable blood, his infinitely valuable blood, as a man perfectly obedient and holy without sin, as God, the God-man, infinite in his power. His precious blood was shed this holy blood shed to ransom people, to rescue people, to buy back people who are enemies of God, to buy back His people from their sin, from our slavery, from our imprisonment to the penalty and power and presence of sin in our lives. He ransoms, ransoms us from an evil master of sin and death to a new master of goodness and life, God Himself. He did that with His blood. And he's worthy because of that. He's rescued us. He's rescued us from our failure. He's rescued us from failing to implement God's plan. And now through him, God's fullness, his full plan, intended from the beginning, will be fulfilled. And we will be a part of it. He's earned the right to rule and to reign over us and over all of creation. And he didn't just purchase us here. Thank God, the hundred plus that are here. If that were all, that would be glorious in and of itself. But the, the text tells us he's ransomed people from where? Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Again, this is reflected in Daniel as well. Why say it four different ways? It's really the same thing he's saying four times. When the Bible repeats things, what is it getting at? 
the, the, the fullness of it, right? So it's, it's every, he could have just said every tribe, every, every group, every subset of people, every tribe. Uh, don't think just like tribe in the Amazon. Just think of subgroups, people, affinity groups, whatever they might be. Every tribe, every language, every different spoken tongue, every dialect, every language, every people, every crowd, every group would be another way to say that. Every nation, every ethnic group. Basically, the point is, he could have said 20 different descriptions of subsets of humanity. The idea is that every subset of humanity, every, every imaginable variant of humanity has people in it that were purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's the glorious truth here. He has purchased men for God from all these different subgroups, every single one, throughout time and throughout the world. All have people in it. We don't know the number. It's innumerable ultimately, but everyone has people in it who have been purchased by the Lamb. He has shed his blood. He's obeyed to the point of death, and he's purchased people for God from all peoples. That, that is what they worship him for. That is the wonderful truth that, that drives us and how we live, how we live out. This is, this is the t-shirt, guys. This is 28 to 3 on the shirt. This is Jesus conquering and rescuing sinners from their failure so that every people group would have representatives who would be part of the new kingdom, part of this kingdom that begins now and will be finished when Christ returns, that every people group would be represented, that there'd be rescue throughout all creation. This is the t-shirt. This is the rescue. This is the, the, the amazingly good news for us. Guys, getting this victory and getting how he has conquered will change us. This is all of our hope in world mission. All of our hope. He's already purchased people from every tribe and nation. So we go knowing that there's already people there. He's purchased. This is all of our hope in, in reaching out to our neighbors because he's purchased people from every, every imaginable subgroup, including your neighborhood. He's purchased people there. Among your extended family, it's your hope. It's your hope in New England that every village in New England would have a gospel church there to proclaim the truth. It's, it's our hope in every way that he has purchased people in every nook and cranny of the world. It says that he has. He has done it. He has conquered. He is worthy. And there to be a kingdom of priests together, ruling as kings and queens. We are to rule as kings and queens in his eternal kingdom enjoying God in all of his glory, walking out what true humanity looks like. And so it's no wonder that the worship goes on in that throne room and it gets louder as the millions and billions of angels say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it, it, it pans out. It's not just the angelic host as glorious as that is. It's also every creature in heaven and on earth. And in some ways what, what's going on now is it's, it's spanning time. The time, the chronology of Revelation is not linear. It's not what we think. And so in chapter 5, now the, the worship goes to all of creation. So it's looking forward to the final, after the final judgment, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the enemies of God, the unrepentant enemies of God, we're enemies left to ourselves, aren't we? But by grace, we repent and believe, and we gladly bow our knees. But, it, but at the end of all things, at final judgment, even his enemies will in some ways reluctantly bow their knees and say, worthy are you. What you've done is amazing. Even they will see the glory of the king, the glory of 
the Lamb, and they will bow. And so it says in chapter 5, verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He is worthy of all the greatest things that we could ever imagine. He is worthy of them all. All the glory that we can give him, all the credit we can give him, everything. He, he deserves it all. He deserves all glory. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What an amazing scene this is in chapter 5. It's going on now. It will go on. And, and, and it's going to be amazing. And it's only, it's only a picture of the glory of, of enjoying and worshipping the Lamb. It is something truly worth celebrating. There are, there are things in life that are worth celebrating. Certainly things that are in, in, in light of the grand scheme of things are trivial like Football games, as much as I love football. It's, do you remember celebrating the win? Yes. So it went from wails and gnashing of teeth to like jumping up and down and hugging and cheering. At least in my group we did that. Did you guys do some of that? And it's fun to celebrate that. There's other things in history that are worthy of celebrating. Using the World War II analogy, when, when finally the Nazis fell, you've seen the pictures, right? When Japan surrendered uh, VE Day, VJ Day, celebrating in the streets that victory. Guys, there's no better victory to celebrate than this victory. This victory of the Lamb who, who shed his blood and purchased men for God and has the right now to bring about the fullness of God's plan in every way. It's elsewhere, it's called elsewhere in Revelation, elsewhere in Scripture. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb, this celebration. When Jesus made the water into wine, it was a picture of that final wedding celebration. He saved the best wine for the last, and, and they drank that wine and celebrated. There's going to be a feast at the end, and there's going to be wine, and you're going to get drunk, not in a way, a worldly way, but in a, you're going to be drunk on the joy and peace and just exulting in what the Lord has done. You'll know it in its fullness, and you'll celebrate forever. But we can celebrate and live in it now. As the band comes up, let me just help us think through some ways to apply this now, because this was written for who? The churches in Asia, right? And for us, right? And, and so it's future indeed, but it's meant to have an impact now. So think about those churches. Think about what they were facing. Let's just take Laodicea. Laodicea had really blown it, hadn't they? They were compromising. They were trying to find their comfort in the world. And so they were compromising their Christian faith and their witness so they could find comfort in the world. How would chapters 4 and 5 make a difference in Laodicea? I trust it did and shifted their mindset into heaven's priorities and heaven's joys and gave them motivation to say, you know what? It doesn't matter really how comfortable I am in this world, and I'm willing to sacrifice comfort and acceptance from others to have what I just read about and heard about in chapter 5. And you know what? If the Lamb has already purchased people for God, then I have hope that my neighbors who are rejecting me right now and putting pressure on me to conform to them actually might repent and believe and be changed. So I have powerful boldness. In my sorrow and in my, in my need and in my trials, I just lost my job because, because I was identified as a Christian. I was put out of the synagogue, identified as a Christian. I lost my job. But you know what? Jesus has won, and he's in control, and he's going to take care of things. And there's a heavenly reality that I need to understand is the ultimate reality. So I should not be overwhelmed by my job loss, 
certainly do what I can, but not be overwhelmed by it and recognize that right now God rules on the throne. He's in charge. He's going to take care of it. So I can trust him to supply the needs of my family and my needs. Do you see how this works out? So before we transition, I just encourage you to just take a minute to pray. Say, Lord, how can I apply chapter 5 to my life? Could be in the area of trial, heavenly perspective, the area of being boldness, bold in your faith, or the area of not compromising or, or any other area. Let's just take a minute, pray, ask the Lord to speak to us because he wants this word to change us, fill us with heaven's perspective, and then we'll transition.